The Bureau of Prisons, an agency of the Justice Department, made two highly visible lists within a couple of weeks. It placed at the very bottom of the list of best places to work in the federal government, meaning its employees rank it as the worst place. And it joined the three dozen other programs on the Government Accountability Office's high-risk list. For why it made the high-risk list, we turn to the GAO's Director for Homeland Security and Justice Issues, Greta Goodwin, who spoke to Federal News Network's Tom Temin. And when we last spoke, we discussed the Bureau of Prisons issue with preventing recidivism and operating that program, which is something that Congress mandated them to do. But now we learn the management problems are much more widespread. What got them on the list this year? So back in March of 2021, we identified the management of the federal prison system as an emerging issue for our high-risk list. And that means that it requires close attention. So we did that for three reasons. The first reason is we had some concerns about the management of staff and resources. BOP continues to face challenges managing their staff and resources. For example, in terms of their staff, they have had staffing challenges over the years, and that means they've had to either have their correctional officers do overtime or augment. And so that has the potential to put prisoner safety and staff safety at risk. So management of their staff and resources was one of the reasons. A second reason that we listed BOP on the high-risk list is because we've seen and observed that they've had some challenges also planning for new programs or initiatives that might help people who are incarcerated prepare for a successful return to the community. And so we also have provided, you know, we did a report last year looking at how well BOP was helping inmates with getting ID documents when they are returning to the community. And as you know, you need an ID to get a job. You need an ID to rent an apartment. So these programs or initiatives that would help a person who's incarcerated successfully return to the community, over the years, we've noticed that BOP has struggled with that. We've also reported on BOP has had some challenges monitoring and evaluating the programs that they are offering people who are incarcerated. And so we've had some concerns about, you know, the spending around that. And in terms of what programs that might be made available, like there are a lot of recidivism reduction programs that just haven't been evaluated, that haven't been monitored. So BOP doesn't really have a good sense for how effective they are. Right. And I think the first two might be related, the correctional officer overtime, the staffing problems, and the documenting and helping people get out of prison and have good programs while they are there to rehabilitate them. Because if the staff is short, there's a greater chance of violence and unrest in prisons. And when that occurs, people kind of get knocked down a peg in the security point and they get further from rehabilitation and release and so on. Yeah. And so it builds on itself. And so when we added the um, management of the federal prison system to the high-risk list, we're also asking that BOP focus its attention on the root causes of these matters. Over the years, we've made a number of recommendations. We still have more than 20 that are outstanding. And so we're asking that BOP turn its attention to these issues. As I spoke last week with Mr. Dodaro, Gene Dodaro, the comptroller, about, in general, the high-risk list, we agreed that there are two issues here. One sometimes is simply money. Do agencies have what they need to to have the resources financially they need to get off the high-risk list or to improve things? And then there's the managerial skill and quality, which is not really necessarily a money issue. It seems like here both are at play, because if you don't have enough staff and you don't pay them well and train them well, especially in something so difficult and potentially 
dangerous, life-threatening as being a prison guard, then you're never going to get anywhere. You know, BOP understands these issues. The Comptroller General has met with the BOP director, and she has voiced her commitment to addressing these issues. BOP, their budget is about $8.5 billion for this current fiscal year. And so when the director is doing her strategic planning, the sense is that she will, you know, make some decisions about where those monies go. We're speaking with Greta Goodwin. She's director of Homeland Security and Justice Issues at the Government Accountability Office. So there is management then agreement that things need to be fixed. I mean, what should be the top of the list of what they do immediately to start climbing out of the hole they're in? So when the BOP director is, you know, doing her strategic planning, she will make those decisions. But, you know, the three reasons why we are putting the management of the federal prison system on the high risk list, I would think that that's where she would start because this management, managing the staff and resources is really key. And as you know, BOP, just the staff in and of itself, BOP has also had six different directors over the past six years. Two of those directors have been acting. And so just management commitment and focus is going to be a real issue here. So our sense is that the BOP director is paying very close attention. And then, as I mentioned earlier, managing some of these rehabilitation programs, just trying to have a good sense for what is successful and what isn't, and focusing your attention and your resources on that. And then you have to monitor and evaluate these programs. We just found that that has not really been happening. And so the BOP doesn't have a good sense for which programs would actually lower the rates of recidivism. And so when you think about BOP is responsible for the care and custody of federal inmates, and part of that care and custody is helping people prepare for a successful return to the community. But if you don't have a good sense for whether these programs are working, that's going to be a major issue. Right. And again, that gets back to the staff on hand at an individual facility because, yes, you can't be naive to the type of population you're dealing with. And some of them are dangerous people. There might be a few people that are really irredeemable. But on the other hand, you can't have people that look at them as somehow less than human at the same time. I mean, it's a really tough role, I would think, to be able to work in a way that enhances their ability to be redeemed, to leave and be rehabilitated and not return. But at the same time, you've got to deal with a very tense, often dangerous situation in reality. You know, some of this speaks to the staff training, the amount of staff that you have on hand. When we did the report looking at BOP staffing challenges, we found that they were understaffed. And as you think about, you know, this current fiscal year, BOP's authorized staffing level is like 40,236. Their actual staffing level at this point in time, because we know that BOP is in a hiring position right now, they're at approximately 34,800,000 800,000 staff. So there's a five, a little over 5,000 gap. And so that just means you have fewer staff on hand to help deal with the population you have. And you have fewer staff on hand just to help ensure that these programs are moving as effectively and efficiently as possible. And what about the Justice Department headquarters itself? What's your sense of how much of a concern this is up at that level? So we know that the Department of Justice IG did list maintaining the secure, safe, and humane prison system as a top management challenge for DOJ. And so we know that there is attention from the bigger agency, the Department of Justice. We know that there is attention to these issues at the main office. I mean, in some sense, dealing with a prison population 
can really reflect the best and the worst of what a nation is capable of because there are many agencies that deal with people at different levels and they have their vicissitudes. But when you're dealing with prisoners, then it's almost a paradox. You have to keep them in place. You've got to make sure they don't escape prison and don't commit violence and so forth while they are in prison or financial crimes. But at the same time, you have to help rehabilitate them as human beings. And I keep returning to that theme, but the extent to which we can do that successfully as a nation kind of reflects national values. Well, the reason BOP is here is for the care and custody of people who are incarcerated. And part of their mission, part of their role is to help reduce the rates of recidivism, help prepare people for a successful return to the community. How that is done, that will be left up to the management of the federal prison system. But we know that there is a commitment to ensuring that things are done properly, things are done effectively. We know that there's a commitment to ensuring that, you know, anyone who enters the federal prison system is evaluated once they come in to determine what their risk of recidivism might be. They're evaluated once they, when they enter to determine what their needs are. So BOP is responsible for providing these programs, whether they be literacy programs, whether they be anger management programs, BOP is responsible for providing that because that helps individuals return safely to the community. Greta Goodwin is Director of Homeland Security and Justice Issues at the Government Accountability Office, speaking there with Federal Drive host Tom Temin. We'll post this interview along with a link to the list at federalnewsnetwork.com slash Federal Drive. Hear the Federal Drive on demand. Subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Hello, and welcome to the Lessons in Leadership podcast. I'm your host, Shane Canfield, CEO of WEPA. Today, I'm thrilled to be joined by Dr. David Wilson, president of Morgan State University. David has had a fascinating career and has garnered a long record of accomplishments from more than 30 years of experience in higher education administration. Came to Morgan State in 2010 from the University of Wisconsin, where he was chancellor of both the University of Wisconsin Colleges and the University of Wisconsin Extension. Before that, he held numerous other administrative posts in academia, including vice president for the University of Outreach, associate provost at Auburn University, and um, associate provost of Rutgers. And when we were talking earlier, too, you had just mentioned that you had a a wonderful nomination at the American Academy of Arts and Sciences. And David, thank you so much for joining me. Uh, Shane, it is indeed a pleasure uh, to be invited into this conversation with you. It's not in your um, in the short bio here, but I also know you served in some capacity in the Obama administration. Yes, I did, as a matter of fact. As I was leaving the University of Wisconsin, where I oversaw the UW colleges, I accepted the presidency at Morgan. And on my way into the presidency at Morgan in 2010, my name was advanced to President Obama to be considered as a member of his board of advisors on historically black colleges and universities. And so I accepted and served there for eight years during his two terms. Amazing. You've had a fascinating career at numerous universities across the U.S. How did you become passionate about the education field? And what are some of the biggest lessons that you've learned? First of all, I was made aware of a quote by Horace Mann, who was great 19th century educator who really gave rise to public education in the United States. And he was the first to utter the phrase that education is the great equalizer. And why that resonated with me was because I grew up in abject poverty uh, in rural Alabama 
And there was no law in Alabama as I was growing up that required black kids to go to school. I was kind of shut off from formal education on a consistent basis. I didn't get a chance to go to school full-time until I was in the seventh grade. We lived on property there that were owned by um, the white landowners. And so the um, owner of the property, a white woman, would bring down to this little shanty that we lived in, and she would bring Look and Life magazines. My mom, uh, she would make us as children plaster these pages of Looking Life magazines against the wall of this little shanty to keep the cold wind out. I would take a kerosene lamp and go around the walls reading those articles in Looking Life magazines, which is when I first came across the phrase of Horace Mann. Hmm. From that point on, I committed myself you know, to education. It's an amazing story, and two things occur to me. One, it's almost incomprehensible that this happened during our lifetime. You know, that to me is uh, almost shocking. It's also truly inspiring that you recognized that you could do more and sought out to do that and were successful at it. So when you think back on that experience, how has that informed, shaped, influenced your leadership position now as president at Morgan State? It, it had to have had an impact, but how would you articulate that? So if you go back to that Alabama environment, what I saw, it was just so many people, my own brothers and sisters, who were 10 times smarter than I was. But my first five brothers were illiterate. They never got an opportunity to show the nation how brilliant they were. Therefore, I really took on this whole notion that my life had to be about ensuring that individuals who were drowning in potential and they didn't realize it would be in a position where they would realize it. I was never ever about positions that would enable me simply to replicate privilege. I don't care where you went to school. I don't care what type of family you came from. I think that's where sometimes we kind of get education wrong. Uh, We have institutions that want to define themselves based on how many students they don't admit. I'm about just the opposite, taking individuals who are absolutely stellar and don't realize it and bringing that into existence for them. You've had so many opportunities that you could do other things, perhaps, at um, larger organizations, but you're where you want to be on purpose, by design, for the kinds of reasons you just talked about, that it's, it's fulfilling. But can you talk a little bit more about that? There have been so many so-called top 50 institutions in the United States that have come aggressively after me. And you know, I flirted with a couple of them, and I went home to Alabama because these two were very serious. And my family is brutally honest with me, and they keep me grounded. So I flew down and began to talk with them about these institutions that were coming after me, I was thinking they would be impressed. And when I finished, my youngest sister said to me, now, are you finished? Clearly, we are not understanding why you would even consider leaving Morgan. It just reassured me uh, that I'm living my purpose at Morgan. And it is joyful uh, to be at a place where you want to be versus being at a place where others think you should be. One question that 
I always have to ask, is there one leader or maybe a couple of leaders that have inspired you that have, you mentioned Horace Mann, I don't know if, if that fits in this category, but what might be a couple of leaders that you remember that, that inspired you, that gave you a purpose, helped shape your life? In 1989, when I was selected as a W.K. Kellogg Fellow, we had to be introduced to leadership that was different in a lot of ways than the leadership that we had been exposed to. In February of 1990, uh, Mr. Nelson Mandela was released, and that's where I wanted to go and meet Mr. Mandela. We had no idea that he would grant an audience, and he did. He granted an audience, and uh, Mr. Walter Sasulu did as well. So here I am, having grown up in Alabama, I harbored some anger toward the society there that kept me from realizing my potential and then kept so many others like me from ever realizing their potential. At the end of a conversation that we had, someone asked Mr. Sosulu, we're leaving this conversation thinking that you harbor no anger towards a society that locked you away for 27 years. Are we leaving with the correct conclusion? He said, I harbored no anger or bitterness towards a society that locked me away for all of those years because I and others like me knew that what we were doing was the right thing. If you commit yourself to doing the right thing, there should never, ever be any space in your heart for anger or bitterness. And that was transformational for me and why I respect and admire Mr. Nelson Mandela and Mr. Walter Sisulu today. That is a great story, and it you know, with all the accomplishments through your life, I'm sure it had a great impact on your ability to to go as far as you have, and you're still going. Well, uh, I, I have a takeaway in, in terms of leadership lessons I've learned. We would be well-served as a nation if I think we created these opportunities for young people at various stages to really, first of all, see the United States. And then we need that same opportunity globally. As a result, when you do that, you understand the history over here. You understand the culture over here. You understand, and you got to understand the world beyond an intellectual understanding. You want to think of your maturation in a way where your brain can never, ever, ever be hacked. <laughs> so that's sort of the way. That's sort I, of the I way that I kind brilliant. of see all of that. You that's know? <laughs> and um, being born in rural Southwest uh, Kansas, flyover country, as they say, I can I can tell you that your your comments about traveling, getting out, not just reading about it, but actually traveling, it, it really is important. It's absolutely critical for someone's personal development. I, I, I happen to think so. Well, Dr. <laughs> David Wilson, thank you so much. I love every single piece of today, but also your life story. It's really impressive, inspiring, and thank you for sharing it. Shane, today. thank you very much for inviting me to have this conversation with you again. And I'm Shane Canfield, CEO of WEPA. We'll see you next time on the Lessons in Leadership podcast.